made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the word or world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And then Article 18 of the Belgic Confession. That can be found on page 171. 171 in our Forms and Prayers books. Last time in Article 17, we heard about the promise to send a son, to send the one born of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. And now we see something more of the coming of that Savior who comes as the Son of God in the flesh through the Virgin Mary. So Article 18 teaches us to believe this. So then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which he had made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent his only and eternal Son into the world at the, at the time set by him. The Son took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses, except for sin, being conceived in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. And he not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul, in order that he might be a real human being. For since the soul had been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both to save them both together. Therefore we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists, who denied Christ assumed human flesh from his mother, that he shared the very flesh and blood of children, that he is the fruit of the loins of David according to the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from, Jews, from the Jews according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham, for he assumed Abraham's seed and was made like his brothers except for sin. In this way, he, truly, he is truly our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we just read together that we confess as Reformed believers against the heresy of the Anabaptists. This is a rather intriguing word to read in our confession. The Anabaptists denied that Christ assumed human flesh 
from his mother, which is also very interesting and historically relevant, I suppose, but maybe for us in the current situation of life, not all that relevant. I mean, is this really a matter of significant concern that it should be included in one of our confessional statements? I mean, do we know any Anabaptists that hold this position? And would we really be bothered if they did? I mean, they still believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They still believe that He's made salvation possible to all who believe. Why do we get bothered? Why did the author of the confession and the churches who approved it get bothered by the fact that the Anabaptists did not believe that Jesus assumed the flesh of His mother? Well, what we forget sometimes is that what we believe is very much at work in the way that we live, in the way that we see the world, in the way that we understand life. Indeed, that, that what we believe shapes the goals we believe are good, the actions we believe are right, and the purpose and the focus for which we have been created. Now, we don't always dig into those underlying ideas and convictions, those things that shape our perspective of the world, of God, of ourselves and each other especially when we grow up in a community with as strong a culture as we have. Everyone does what everyone does in our community. Everyone thinks the same way. Everyone knows the same truth. We, we don't really have to think too much about it. We come to the incarnation. We come to the Christmas story, and it's so very familiar to, to us that we can pass over it without too much difficulty. But what if there are real, practical, and tangible consequences to what we believe so that they are incredibly significant, indeed foundational, for our view of life, radically altering our experience and enjoyment of life, indeed, of our understanding of God and of His grace? What if something as simple as the incarnation is in fact a life-altering reality that utterly shapes our understanding of life itself so that if you change it even in the least, you change the world in which we live. I mean, that's no minor matter, is it? The incarnation is certainly no minor matter. It stands central to our faith. I mean, there are, I suppose, some matters that fellow Christians can differ on and still enjoy the fellowship of faith, but surely the incarnation is not one of them. For many Christians today, everything we believe is a matter of opinion and a personal preference that is to be accepted simply because the person believes it. There is no right and wrong between believers. There is no truth or a lie. And that makes sense when viewed through the lens of our world, but does not make sense when viewed through the lens of God's Word. That is, if we are to know the comfort of God's grace, we need to see what He's revealed to us and we need to embrace it as He's revealed to us, altering it in no way. And indeed, both of these concerns, that is, the practical concern of our doctrines and the need to hear God's Word speaking to us clearly and embracing it as He's revealed it, are given immediate expression in the very opening paragraph of Article 18 of the Belgic Confession. We read there that we confess that God has fulfilled the promise which he made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets whom he sent, or when he sent rather, his only and eternal son into the world at the time sent by him. 
Here, the writer of the confession, the churches who adopt it, make two important points. First, that the Father fulfilled His Word, His promise. That is, He gave the promise to send a Son, and He sent that Son. He did exactly what He said He would do. Now, you ought to understand that for some people, that's too fanciful, too fantastic an idea. That God should send His Son in the flesh? That's just mythical. That's just made up. That's, that's such a resonant idea within religions that it has to be made up. Egyptians had something similar. Greeks had something similar. It's really just ultimately another version of that made-up idea that religions seem to want to have. This idea that God can be half God, half man, that sort of thing. That there's some miraculous birth, that there is some Savior who comes into this world to rescue us from whatever trouble we endure. It's such a, a, a commonplace thought. It's such a, a strange idea. And it's such an ancient idea. One we no longer need. We, we live in a more mature, more understandable society. We, we understand how the world works. We understand the mechanization of nature. We understand the, the great secrets of, of our world. We, we don't need God to rescue us anymore. We have chemotherapy. We have, we have all sorts of... Uh, uh, philosophical understandings that allow us to be free of oppression and cruelty. The early church made up that business about the incarnation because they were immature. They didn't understand life. But we know better. And in response, the church must stand fast with the revelation of God given in Jesus Christ. We must know that what Jesus came and did, the story of the Incarnation, is not something we made up, something that we wanted to believe because we need some sort of uh, help in the unfortunate, scary world in which we live, but that rather Jesus' Incarnation is the clearest expression of God's faithfulness to His own Word. That for centuries, for millennia, long before any of us, indeed any in the New Testament, church were on the face of the earth to make up this apparent myth. God had been saying, I'm going to send a son. And that son will die for your sins. You know, the Old Testament, you understand, is full of these promises that find their clearest expression in the incarnation of our Lord. I mean, just listen to Handel's Messiah, which is played every Christmas and every Easter. And hear how many passages Handel can bring to bear to proclaim the coming Messiah. Genesis 3, verse 15, we've already noted, but what of Isaiah 9, verse 6, where he is declared to be mighty God? What about Isaiah 7, verse 14, where he is the one born of the virgin? Isaiah 11. The great counselor, the root of Jesse. And then think of all those miraculous births in the Old Testament that, that present the coming of the Messiah in this way. Not incarnations, to be sure, but still miraculous, God-driven, God-created sons born where you would not expect life to bear forth. Think of Isaac from Abraham and Sarah. Think of Samson from Mrs. Manoah. Think of Samuel. Think of his coming 
in that moment to Hannah, who was so grieved and weeping and cried out to God for a blessed deliverer and was given one. Indeed, think of Moses, the great Old Testament deliverer himself, rescued, or born rather, to rescue his people and delivered miraculously from death by the very princess of Egypt. You see, at a very minimum, all of these passages would make us expect that God was going to deliver his people from their spiritual enslavement by the miraculous birth of a man. And indeed, those prophecies of the Old Testament that pile up one after another, presenting to us this reality, find their fullest expressions in the, in the Son born of the Virgin Mary. So that the Word of God presents a very different take on the incarnation, than our, uh, the incarnation of our Lord than is taken up by our world. Far from being the copy of other religions or a man-made idea that helps us deal with the scary reality of this life, the incarnation of the Son is in fact the fulfillment of God's promises, His many and rich promises concerning a Savior. When we believe then in this incarnate Jesus, this Son of God in the flesh, we are not taking leave of our senses at all, but are trusting in the One who alone can truly reveal this mystery to us. And here again, we depart with so many who have a, we depart from those many who have a different perspective on the incarnation of our Lord. For in the history of the church, there have been those who have been, who've argued that the God of the Old Testament is the angry, vengeful, punishing God who was bloodthirsty and cruel and who, who was angry with His people intent only on punishing them. But then His Son, you see, His Son tricked the Father by secretly coming in the flesh. And dying on the cross, appearing then before His Father in heaven, saying, now God, will you still hate these people? There are those who'd argued that, who argue that Jesus' sacrifice was done behind God's back without the Father's knowledge. This is the way they square all of those Old Testament passages that seem so hard, so heavy, so, so full of wrath, and the New Testament that seems so full of grace, mercy, and love. They say, well, Jesus tricked God into being happy. And it may seem at first as though such an interpretation helps us solve this Old Testament's emphasis on wrath and the New Testament's emphasis on grace. It misses the point that it is God who sent His Son fully aware of what He was doing. Repeatedly, we read that God sent His Son. We read it in John chapter 1. Indeed, if we just look at the Gospel of John, we see it in chapter 5, verse 19, in chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, in the chapters 14 through 17. We have in the book of John itself sufficient evidence to teach us that Jesus' coming wasn't something that happened behind the Father's back, but was in fact something that the Father did that He did in order that we might know salvation, that we might be blessed by His grace. God does not have to be tricked into loving us. The God who is rightly and righteously angry with our sin, but nonetheless sends His Son to die for us, is a loving, kind, and tender God who receives His people when they bow before Him in humble adoration. And the only people who don't appreciate this kind of a God are the people who prefer, their, who prefer their sin to being saved. 
So you see, the incarnation tells us something about ourselves and about our world, about our God and, and the one he sent to take on flesh. The incarnation tells us that our God, is, that our God loves this world, that he values this world and gives it a significance, not because of anything we've done, but because our God is the redeemer of it. And even as we see, our world needs a redeemer. You see, that's what the confession goes on to speak of when it speaks of the Savior who took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. Now here's another aspect of the incarnation that is roundly mocked by our world. A virgin conception? What a joke. What a laughable teaching. What an excuse Mary gave to Joseph to explain away her pregnancy. And how then do we as Christians explain this truth to our world? Well, we need to again understand why it is that it was necessary for the for the Spirit to conceive within the womb of Mary a son. We're already actually told something of that or given a hint of that when in Genesis 3.15 God in cursing the serpent says that he would put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and that that seed would crush his head even as the serpent would crush his heel. The seed of the woman, said God. Which is intriguing because in the rest of Genesis... Children are always recorded as belonging to the Father. Adam gave birth to Seth, it says. Adam brought forth. In the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, genealogy is traced not through your mother, but through your father. And yet here in Genesis 3.15, God says there will not be a father, there will be a mother. There will be a woman who gives birth, but no mention of a man. Now, that's only a hint, of course. That's only something that comes to fullest expression in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But it is a start. A start that reminds us man cannot be involved, males cannot be involved in the bringing forth of the Messiah. Now, you wonder, why is that? Why can't a man be the father of the Messiah? The answer comes, and has come already in Belgic Confession in Article 15, the answer comes when we remember that man was a representative of all of his followers, his children, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Man, Adam, now very specifically Adam, is the representative, the fountain of life from which all of life flows. Indeed, doesn't woman receive her existence from man? You'll remember that man is put to sleep and the woman is taken from the side of man. Man is created miraculously in the way that God drew him up out of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. But woman comes from man. And everyone else comes from man after that through the, birth, through the normal process of birth. So man is the representative, the fountain from whom all of life comes. Well, that fountain, you remember, became foul when he fell into sin, when man rebelled against God and rejected his claim upon him. Now, every time man has a son, man has a sinful son. All of us are born in sin, conceived in sin, because we are born of Adam. So we need 
a new source of life. We need a new generator, a new father. Indeed, the Messiah needs a father that is exempt from this foul fountain, from this flow of sin. He cannot have an earthly father. Because if he were to have an earthly father, that man, that Messiah, would be a sinner. Well, then why not just start brand new? I mean, God obviously could make man out of nothing. Why not just make a new man, the Messiah, out of nothing? Why a woman? Why conceive of a life inside the womb? Now, we don't have a problem with the notion that the Spirit can do such a thing. If God can create man out of the clay, out of the dust of the ground and breathe life into him, then God can create a, a life within the womb of Mary. But why should God create life within the womb of Mary? Why not just start over with a radically new man? Well, the answer comes again in the Scripture, which reminds us that God is a God of justice. And because He's a God of justice, He punishes those who sin. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 reminds us that sinners suffer the consequences of their sin. Indeed, all of the Old Testament judgments are examples of God's judging people for their sin. God is not a cruel God. God does not capriciously or angrily just stomp on people like we might stomp on ants. Oh no, God is patient, kind, and gracious even with those living in darkness. You think of the, the nations that, that were in the land of Palestine before the Israelites came. And remember that God said to Abram already 400 years before, I'm, I'm doing a work with them. I'm being patient with them. And it was only after 400 years of their rejection of God that God said, now the punishment must come. For they have refused to believe on me, have refused to follow me. Oh, God is not a God that is cruel in an unnecessary way. He is, though, he is however, a God of justice. And justice says that the sinner must pay for their sin, must satisfy the judgment that they have been assigned. And indeed, the judgment we've been assigned by virtue of our sin is death. Thus, it is not enough, you understand, for an animal to die on our behalf. Because an animal is not a sinner, is not a human. Nor is it possible for any other creation to be offered in sacrifice on our behalf in order to redeem us. Man has sinned, man must die. A man from the humanity created by God in the beginning, from the humanity that fell into sin and rejected Him, that fell into sin and refused to live in service to the Lord. A child from that line, a child from Adam's family must die. The only way to have such a child is if it is born of a woman. If that child grows in the womb for nine months and then in time is delivered. And so God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, creates within the womb of Mary a true human, body and soul, so that that child might represent His family, might represent humanity before the throne of God in sacrifice for our sins. You see, that's really the issue, isn't it? 
Only those who, do not, who refuse to accept their need of a Savior, who refuse to accept that they're sinners, who refuse to accept that God is rightly angry with them, only those who want to put the blame on God and say He shouldn't be such an angry God, only those who think that God is cruel do not believe in their need for a Savior such as this. Indeed, we live in such a world, do we not, where the idea that God should demand of His people some kind of of judgment is laughable. Indeed, the idea that God exists, the idea that the spiritual exists, and that the spiritual can impact the material, that there are things like angels and demons, that there is a heaven and a hell, that there is more to reality than that can be touched, seen, or examined is to our world foolishness. And in such a world, the idea that God should take on flesh in the womb of Mary is laughable. But we know better. We know that the Spirit of God, in a way that is more mysterious than we can begin to understand, conceived in Mary the Messiah precisely because we need such a Savior. The Creator took on, became rather the creature, and the spiritual took on the physical. The eternal became temporal because we need a Redeemer. And that reminds us, doesn't it, that teaches us that there, is, there are more important things in this world than my temporary and temporal happiness. That this life is not all there's to it, that there is a purpose and a reality beyond this world, and that if we would experience that eternity in joy and thanksgiving, we must be redeemed by, the, by this Savior, one who is not born of man, but is born of the woman, one who is perfect in His righteousness, the Son of God in the flesh, to bear up under the judgment that we deserve. That our world should deny this is not surprising. They want a Savior that satisfies their expectations, that meets their felt needs, that does what they think that He should. No wonder they create Saviors one after another after their own image. But such Saviors are always too weak, too small, and too insufficient. We need a Savior that is so miraculous, so apart from us, so wonderfully amazing, because we are utterly dependent upon this God for our redemption. It may defy our ability to truly comprehend, but the only Messiah that can save us is one who is truly human and truly God. Our eternity depends on it. And our current comfort depends on it. Indeed, what does the the confession go on to say? He not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul in order that he might be a real human being. For since the soul has been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both to save them both together. The confession teaches us that Jesus came in full humanity, more than just in appearance. He didn't just look like a man. He wasn't just a charade. Jesus was really a man. He was true God and true man, body and soul, because He came to save us in our entirety. He became fully man so that man might be fully saved. Now, we forget this with great regularity. 
We tend to adopt a partial view of salvation, one that really expects only that our souls are saved. Our bodies, after all, go into the grave. We know that. And we believe, don't we, that our souls go immediately to God in heaven. And that's really the end of the story, isn't it? We're now in that place of happiness and of bliss. We are free from the brokenness of sin. Why would we ever want to come back to this world, we tell ourselves? Only souls are, our, our souls rather, are the only thing that God really wants and eternally saves. And when we think this way, that has a very profound view on our experience and expectation of life on this earth. You see, if our bodies are not necessary, if they're not important, if they're not something that we need to value because we're going to throw them in the ground at the end anyway, then our bodies are mere objects. They're tools to be used, to displayed, to be displayed, to be discarded in their time then our bodies can be treated in any disrespectful, any foolish way that we want. Then our physical pleasure is ultimately disconnected from our spiritual reality. And aren't we so often living that way? When we drink to excess, when we get drunk, when we get high, what are we doing? We are saying, my body is my own. I can do with it what I want. And it doesn't touch my eternity. My eternity is secure because God saved my soul. But God hasn't just saved your soul. God hasn't just saved that that ethereal, that spiritual part of you. He has saved you body and soul. For Jesus came in body and soul. And indeed, when we remind ourselves of who Jesus is then suddenly our perspective on the world must radically alter. For now we must value the body as an integral part of our humanity, indeed an eternal part of our existence. For not only does Jesus promise that he will deliver our souls from the brokenness of sin, but he promises to resurrect our bodies too, so that we will in the flesh, in the full experience of humanity, enjoy life upon this earth for all eternity. God does not dismiss the physical, but values it a great deal. Indeed, Jesus died for it, died for our bodies. And that changes or ought to change how we view and understand people. That they are more than just electrochemical processes, more than just a product of their environment, more than just thinking reads. Oh yes, we have a soul. But we are a living soul. We are spiritual and physical. And we are to understand life that way. We are to value this body, not mistreating it, but protecting and preserving it. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are to value this body because Jesus has died for it, has redeemed it by the precious blood that He shed upon the cross. When we remember that Jesus came in the flesh, both body and soul, then we understand how completely we've been saved by the Son and how completely our lives are secure in Jesus Christ. And we rest in the comfort of this grace. So that you see the incarnation, which is so familiar to us, is really in fact 
a rather profound realization of what life is all about under, uh, before the face of God. The incarnation is central to our faith, but it is profoundly life-altering. You cannot look at the world the same way when you know the truth of our Savior's incarnation. You cannot see sin and not recognize it as such. You cannot see salvation and not rejoice in it. You cannot live in this life without valuing what God has given. Indeed, the incarnation helps us to see what is truly human, what it means to be truly alive, and what it means to truly walk upon the face of this earth. For Jesus is the true man, the full man, the ultimate man by whom we find redemption and life by our Savior, the true Emmanuel who has purchased and redeemed us by His blood. The incarnation, the story of Christmas, is for many in our world a joke, something that is laughed at. And sometimes maybe we feel the pinch of that. Maybe we think there's something laughable about it. We can't defend it. We can't understand it the way we ought. But open your Bible and read and see how on every page is written the story of God's fulfilling this work and purchasing for His people, purchasing in His Son a people who live for Him. And then offer your life in gratitude, body and soul, to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift.